Welcome to the next edition of Cyber Context featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. Jonathan, I think I gave you a demotion last week unintentionally, called you the Chief Information Officer. You know, I don't even know what that is. It's like, what, Minister of Information, you're in charge of propaganda. No, Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak, uh, talking about cyber issues, I'm Christian Whiten. All right, in the news this week, last week, but probably evergreen for quite a while, uh, the latest vulnerability that um, uh, has a lot of people up in arms and concerned the Log4j vulnerability breach, whatever we want to call it, um, which actually uh, pertains to, uh, I guess, a, a very broad swath of information technology, uh, web design, web usage. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on and how this came about? Yeah, and so so I'm not the only one to to say this, but it is you know I really do believe this is probably one of the worst worst vulnerabilities we've ever seen, and you know we'll have seen things with bigger immediate impact and faster breach, but since this is such a low level dependency that's been used for 15 years or more in basically every single you know server side Java program, you know this vulnerability is is going to exist throughout our infrastructure, you know, and I think there's very few people that don't have it as a dependency somewhere in their organization. And I think that that, in fact, is what makes it so hard. It's that, you know, most organizations, even if they do a little decent asset management, they don't know what dependencies their asset has, and they don't know what their supply chain looks like. Even if you know, well, I have this piece of software and this piece of software and this piece of software, you don't know what its supply chain is and what its dependencies are. And so it's, you know, you're not going to be able to just look up in your, you know, your asset table and say, well, am I vulnerable? You're actually going to reach out to all those vendors and find out, are you vulnerable? And the, the challenge is that a lot of people have problems upgrading even to, um, uh, to mitigate this. And it's like, when well, that's actually where it started, it was, it was actually discovered in the Minecraft community. So this vulnerability came to light because of uh, you know ne'er do wells hacking Minecraft servers for for one reason or another, um, and so it, it turns out you know I'm, I'm sure some state actors have found this, but you know it only comes they they just sit on these these good vulnerabilities and don't tell anybody. But you know when the 14 year olds need to get even on Minecraft, that's when we get to find out about these you know cataclysmic uh, vulnerabilities we have in our infrastructure. So um, and 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 they're actually a great ca case of why it can be hard to upgrade. Because to upgrade, you need to upgrade your Minecraft server that runs on the newer, that has the newer dependencies and, and fixes this. But, you know, there those, a lot of those Minecraft servers have plugins, they, you know, mods, they call them in, in, in the game world, but they're essentially plugins that modify the gameplay. Um, and the, the, a lot of the mods these, these people are using are not compatible with the newer versions. So they don't want to upgrade. And so they're really stuck. They're really up to, well, do I upgrade or do I lose capability? Um, and I think that that same challenge you're going to find throughout the, the enterprise um, where upgrading, even when it's available, may cause other incompatibility issues. Uh, so you can't just, you know, do it right away. So I think that's a, it's a really, shows a really interesting wrinkle in supply chain security, right? Because one view of supply chain security, we just knew what all our dependencies were. We knew where we got all our stuff. We could track all of it. And when we find that, oh, there's a vulnerability or dependency, let's upgrade. Well, sometimes you can't just upgrade because you have these inter interdependencies. I think it's, it's another angle on the supply chain security issue that, that uh, 
I think really sheds light on how deep a problem it really is. Can you dial it back just a little um, as far as what Log4j is? So, I mean, the, the name implies it's a log. And so this basically tracks what various people are doing um, for the various pieces of software well, that go into your bigger piece of software. Or is, is well, that no, right no, or am I getting that no, wrong? No, no. What, what it is is when you write a piece of software, you might want to output useful information to the user, like diagnostic information. Hey, somebody connected to your server. Hey, you know, the connection ended or this error happened. And you could just print, right? You just use a print statement and print that to the console and hope that gets sucked up into the log. But you know, a lot of times you want more information. You want to know, hey, what was the user that was connected to this request? What time was it made? Was well, then maybe there's other resources that are associated with it. So you usually end up wanting some infrastructure to sort of manage your logs that includes this various extra data in it. And you want to often like have a generic log string and then you want to format that string. You want to have some slots in that string where you can put in specific values. Like you say, the generic would be like user login failed, but you might want to say user login for Bob for user question mark failed. And you might want to so print user login failed for Bob or Sally or, you know, uh, insert whatever name you want there. Um, and so the Log4j is, is a great piece of software that um, provides a lot of those basic facilities you want to create good, useful logs that are easy for you to then use to understand the capacity planning, um, so, you know, attacks, uh, just bugs, just understand what's going on in your server out there and be able to understand events and how they happen. And what makes, you know, Log4j has been around forever. Like I was using it probably 15 years ago now on projects that I was working on in Java. So this is not a new piece of software. And what there's two, so, so the actual vulnerability is that they, somebody said, hey, I would really like to, when this log event occurs on this machine to correlate all the information. They're like, I'd like to make a network request over here and learn some other piece of information on another machine. So this log line contains the whole context. Well, unfortunately, um, that can get that network request can get triggered uh, in most scenarios by attacker controlled data. So hmm. it's very simple in the Minecraft case where this discovered, which is chat messages are logs. And so you can put the escape sequence that does that network request into the chat message. Um, and now that this gets worse in the case of, of Java, because Java has a very rich uh, serialization, object serialization thing. So you can take a, a, a data structure in Java, they're, they're objects that have behavior connected to the data, and you can serialize it. So you can send it over the network and then deserialize it, and then keep using that object and calling functions on the object to access data or manipulate it. Um, the problem is, is that a lot of those deserializers have bugs in them and are unsafe. So what you do is, as an attacker, you say, oh, I want to make this network request to this other service to learn more information. But then that other service is actually an attacker-controlled service that then returns a malicious data type, which Java will then deserialize and give you remote code execution on the server. There are other simpler things you can do, too, like they're just like... Uh, you can format it so that you can accident you can get it to send you not just your log line but other people's log line. There's a, a <laughs> like four or five different ways you can abuse this bug. The remote code execution just being sort of the the simplest game over one if you can get that one to work as an attacker. And so 
you know, once I've got this remote code execution, I can do whatever that that server process can do. Um, and that's that's often pretty catastrophic. Um, at the least, sensing obviously can make network connections since it's connected back to the servers. You could just use it for a, a large DOS uh, fleet, but you know, you can also steal customer data, data on the server, all sorts of negative implications there. Are you surprised that for something that's apparently ubiquitous or very commonly used, and as you mentioned, you've said people have been using this for 15 years, I know hindsight is always 2020. Are you surprised that, well, first of all, that people haven't gotten back and, and looked at these sort of pillars of, of software design and, and, and looked for things like this, or on the flip side, that malicious actors, when you think about it, you have some of the, the best and most devious minds in the world, whether they're working for governments or or others, uh, adversaries like China and Russia and Iran or the NSA and GCHQ, that, that, that this hasn't been discovered until now? Oh, I'm sure it has been discovered before now. It's just the previous people who discovered chose to keep it for their purposes rather than, you know, use it in a way in which the, the capability will get burned. Um, actually, this, is a, this in some ways, this capability is going to take forever to get burned, but it was still, it, it now has decreasing applicability. Uh, and it's also something people are looking for now in terms of um, threat hunting and looking for, you know, intrusions in the past. So, um, you know, and I think, what, how did this happen? It's like, yeah, this is this is a, a really big challenge for how we built the internet today. I mean, one of the fundamental technology or, you know, maybe social movements we've used to build the internet is open source and free software. And so there's a huge base of software out there which you can get for free and log4j is free right and powers millions millions and millions of, of services and billions of dollars of or part of billions of dollars of revenue and other things too you know like not all even all of the core maintainers of python right are paid and python's used for heavily in scientific computing and ai and stuff like that and there are people working for free to enable trillion dollar industry and the problem is though is that you know one of the problems, I mean, uh, let me say, I'm not sure this would be fixed if there was more money behind it, but part of the problem here is that, you know, Log4J is maintained by two people, primarily one guy who has a full-time job, and this is just what he does on the side, <laughs> right? So we've got this fundamental piece of infrastructure that nobody really noticed was unsupported, largely, barely supported, but everybody's using. So it's it's a, it's a really interesting question here. We've benefited greatly from, you know, this this freely accessible broad supply chain, and it's it's been great. But we don't really know how to manage that in terms of maintenance and porting. And this isn't the first time we've got we've had this. The Heartbleed bug, which was the open SSL blog, bug, that was a um, a a data leak bug, which could be used to leak the private keys used in open SSL, among other things. Um, was kind of the same problem is when they when that bug happened, basically OpenSSL was unfunded, but used universal. You know, the, the reaction to that is now OpenSSL is reasonably well funded because everybody's like, wow, this is a fundamental piece of internet internet infrastructure. You know, we're making billions of dollars with this. Maybe we should like, you know, pay people a few hundred thousand dollars a year to maintain it. And I'm sure that will happen for log per day, but what's the next one? And you know, to ask why wasn't this discovered sooner? You know, uh, in terms of publicly, it's because I think it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't fit into the cookie cutter kind of exploit, right? It's a logic bug. It's, it's actually, I wouldn't even say it's a logic bug because actually the feature worked as designed. There are some 
bugs that it was you know used to chain together to get remote code execution and other things, but the core vulnerability that you can cause the the uh, an attacker can cause your computer to request data that they can return and can be deserialized into Java objects was by design. And it's actually a design flaw. So you can't just go with your regular code scanners and say, hey, do I have an implementation bug? Because it wasn't a bug in the implementation. It was a bug in the design. So those are much harder to capture. Interesting. Uh, another remedial question with these, with something like this that uses remote code execution, is that uh, the same exploit that people who apply ransomware use? I mean, Colonial Pipeline or tax on shipping companies or hospitals, is, is this very different than that? Or is it the well, same concept at work? Um, remote code execution is the vulnerability, right? So that, that's the bug, the vulnerability that you use to deliver, that, the, that, that can be used to deliver a payload. And so when you talk about ransomware, the ransomware is the payload, but they can deliver that in a lot of different ways. I mean, so the Thin7 crime group, which is fairly prolific, um, you know, crime group, they didn't use any zero days. Uh, I was about to say O-Day, which is a, a you know, kind of more casual term of art for zero day. Um, or and a zero day bug, you know, for those that don't know, is a bug which is in the wild before there is a patch available for it. So this is a bug in which is being publicly exploited while there is no patch available. Um, so it's you have mitigations at best for it. You can't fix it. And you know they would just they would just get people to run malicious software. You know, so they would just build a relationship with the target and talk to them, talk to them like, yeah, I really need you to run, to do to download this or run this thing because you know boss is going to be upset or whatever their 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 scheme is to convince that person. And I just so they did that. So they didn't even need any exploits to do that. So the exploit is the bug you use to run your payload, but you can also just use social engineering like the Fin Seven Group did to do that. So. Uh, what remote code execution is, is a bug in a piece of software that allows an adversary to run arbitrary code in the process of that software. So you've got a process running, say, you know, uh, you know, uh, Excel, right? And I can send you an Excel file, which I constructed to tickle some bugs in Excel, such that instead of uh, running Excel code, it runs code I hand, hand it in the Excel process. Interesting. With Log4j, is this um, something used and therefore, you know, we have new vulnerabilities? Is it mainly for things that for apps that run on the web or in the cloud? Or is it just the whole gamut of software? Is it unique to operating specific operating it's, systems? It's, or it's is it in, in any Java software, really. Any Java software is likely to use Log4j, especially if it runs in the server, you know. Uh, it might be you don't use log4j in a desktop job application, but those are pretty rare these days. They do exist, mm -hmm. but they're they're less common. Um, but but certainly, you know, but but almost any Java software is going to be built on log4j. So this is is similar to that programming language, and it's part of the programming language ecosystem. There's some some that doesn't. There's going to use other logging software or just use print statements or you know some some other form of of reporting you know information and errors. And that again is why this is such a catastrophic flaw. It's because it's everywhere. You know, there's not one piece of software. I mean, it would be bad if, you know, it's bad when like there's a exploit in the Linux or Windows kernel, because that's everywhere, right? And you can go exploit everything very quickly. It's all exactly the same exploit and you can take over a lot of things very quickly, but it's also only one thing that has to be fixed. 
this is basically almost any software written in Java has a chance of being vulnerable to this bug. And it's interesting uh, to me, and this is news to me, that you say that patches could actually be uh, declined by um, by software designers, by the people who administer um, things that have used Log4j, because that could disable other functionality or cause other problems. I had always thought of, well, it's sort of a race when um, an exploit, when a bug comes around, you wait, the patch is what fixes that, and you hope that nothing bad happens in the interim, but that even if there is what is advertised as a solution for this, um, that uh, it may not might, may not just be workable. It may, you may decide to gamble on the vulnerability because you don't want to have to um, create a lot more. Can you talk a little bit of, of, about more about that um, and how and sort of with a type of um, functionality that might be screwed up by a patch? Well, it, it's not the patch that usually screws up the functionality, except if somebody was depending on that buggy behavior. I mean, somebody asked for this feature, right? And they were using it for something, and they're obviously going to care that that feature has to be removed to make it secure. But um, more commonly, it's that somebody was, you know, you, when you upgrade your software, you know, you very rarely just get the fixes to the bugs. You usually get new features and changes to behavior or new bugs. <laughs> and so the question is, is do those changes of behavior, whether intentional or, or by bugs, do they affect your use of the software in your organization? You know, this is why, you know, things like Patch Tuesday exist, right? So organizations can prepare, like, okay, we're going to download the software, we're going to evaluate it on our network, we're going to say, okay, can we run this? They can add into their regular lifecycle maintenance predictability, so they can sort of plan for these things because they have to take the software, check that the patch doesn't break their core business functionality, because you know it's it's great if you stop the adversaries get in but it's no good if it causes your whole business to grind to a halt and you can't do business. So, you know, business, doing business is more important than the risk of the ad, some adversary may be hacking you. Certainly because upgrading in a way that breaks your, your business process, you can't do business, definitely affects your ability to make revenue, um, where being hacked might affect to some allow your ability to make revenue. So it's a real, it's a trade-off and you need testing uh, in big organizations with complex systems. So, you know, for consumers on their PCs, it's a lot easier. You just upgrade. But sometimes that breaks stuff as well, right? You have right. some old piece of less well-supported software that you depend yes. on. Or my work. scanner always seems to stop working when I upgrade Exactly. Stuff. No. So mm -hmm. if you depend on your using your scanner every day for business, you're going to think, you're going to say, hey, have I scanned all my documents the day before I upgrade, right? That same kind of challenge scales to the enterprise, but with even more complexity and even more risk. Well, and it seems like government has the, the, the toughest time upgrading. I remember times I've served in government, the idea that you would download a new version of something as soon as it's available is an alien concept. They have to uh, spend a great deal of time contemplating these things. So, uh, you know, we speculate well, that, that this would be create more vulnerabilities and exploit exploitable opportunity with government systems and private sector ones. Oh, I mean, certainly there, there, I know they do like sort of, Cyber health reports occasionally. I think it's the Department of Homeland Security. I forget which 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 uh, branch of the executive branch does this. And you know, I, I've heard that you know they'll they'll audit an organization, and then they'll come back a year or two later and audit the organization and find exactly the same vulnerability still in place, <laughs> and nothing changed. Right? They they were given a report of what they needed to fix, and they fixed none of it. 
So, and, and it's not just, you know, that they have to think about it. It's often they don't have the, the in-house capabilities to do it even sometimes. So, and that's true of small businesses. I mean, if you've got a mature enterprise organization with a great IT group and a great InfoSec group, you know, you're going to be able to manage this, right? You're going to be able to go through, and it's going to be too boring. There's, you know, you know, you pour one out for all these, like, incident response people because they haven't slept in a week, right? They're, you know, literally having people bring food to them at their desk while they, they work through. And then they think they fixed everything, and then we discover a new way this is broken, and the patches they applied are not good enough, and they have to do it all over again. So, you know, this is a bad place to be in instant response right before the holidays. I feel really bad. But, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I genuinely do. You know, and this is going to be... This is, I mean, and they're not going to, there's no, I don't see an end to this, right? There's well, that was my, yeah, that was my next question is uh, whether it's just with Log4j or are there other tools like this that um, sort of are just sitting around as part of the background scenery and, and we use them, uh, we trust them, we rely on them, they're sort of, you know, free or as, as was this um, managed by one person in his free time. I mean, um, I, I I don't know what they what what the answer to that question. If they did, somebody you know, somebody would go look. If they do, but I mean, thinking of it, certainly. I mean, certainly. I mean, and like something that we have we have learned since, say, the '90s, right? When when we got kind of started getting serious about uh, information security, right? When when the internet kind of exploded is when we started getting serious about information security because it's when we started realizing we had global adversaries. And maybe most of them at that time were, you know, teenagers wanting to deface web pages to, you know, to get props. I mean, that was a whole scene back then, right? And there, that, that people just hacked for fun, and but people started taking it seriously. And the thing is, is we've been, we spent probably 20, 25 years thinking, well, we can mitigate these programming defects in, in or the programming defects in C. This is a whole nother category. And what we've discovered is that it just doesn't work. For every mitigation, there's a workaround. For any mitigation in this thing, there's just a different kind of way you can attack the system. And I think what it all boils down to is the fundamental security architecture that we're using uh, is not robust in the face of the complexity of the applications we build. And the reason for that is, is that all of the logic that you run in your in most applications runs in the same security domain with the same privileges. And so that means that if there's a flaw in any part of it, it's equal to a flaw in any other part of it and gains the full privileges of the system. And there, you know, a you know, any reasonable size system is going to contain hundreds of thousands to millions of lines of code. And a good percentage of those lines of code, all you know, errors in a good percentage of those lead to the uh, failure of the security of the system as a whole. And so, until we can come up with an architecture which allows us to stop trusting most of the code we run, we're going to have this problem. It sounds like so you're talking about zero trust, um, uh, but in a, in a uh, very kind of micro way uh, where it's, it's not it's applied. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it zero trust. I mean, zero trust, I, I in my mind, I mean, it's become kind of a buzzword, but I think the yeah. most useful definition of what it is is moving the security perimeter from the organization to the application. So you have a network application. It used to be you protected it by protecting your organization's network, 
And now you do it by putting the security perimeter around that application, and it doesn't even implicitly trust other users or applications on your network. Um, it assumes the the it assumes your the the corporate network is just as untrustworthy as the public internet. And but this is actually about that. But that's still sort of like reducing your 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 sort of defensive position around something that's just as insecure. Still, as soon as you breach that wall, it's still game over. What we really you know, and and in fact. You know, this log4j is a good example. Why is it that your logging library can do anything your application does if you find a remote code execution bug in it? Why is when I call out to logging, I'm giving it permission to do anything the rest of my application to do? What we really need is, again, this, this sort of radically different security architecture, which is able to segment permissions on a fine-grained scale built into the application. We've tried things kind of like this, with mandatory access controls at the operating system level. But the problem is with that is you're having to sort of like deduce the security needs of the application as this sort of separate side policy. And the application is so complex is you're always going to get it kind of right, but eventually fall off the end and something that's actually supposed to be allowed is disallowed or something that shouldn't have been allowed is allowed. And so sort of like Rebuilding the security policy of the application on the side in the operating system kernel just has kind of turned out to be unworkable at scale. It certainly can be deployed in certain environments and provides a lot of security when you can deploy it appropriately, but it's very hard to make that work without sort of being built with the application. You know, on the other side of things, we see things like web browsers and the security architecture they're developing. So, like every web page, you know, runs as a separate untrusted domain that doesn't. You can't, from one web page, access the other web page's information, or really even reach out to the internet except from where you got the resources. So there's a whole bunch of you know, the web pages run in a little sandbox, and that sandbox has control. There are that sandbox is not perfect, and there's sandbox escapes that happen sometimes. Um, but but it has that sort of architecture where you mutually distrust things inside the application. And Firefox even took it a little further recently, where they actually um, take low trust libraries and sandbox the library in process to limit what it's able to do. So that, you know, when I send a, a you know, I, I ask a, I need a, a, SS, a, a TLS or an X509 certificate, which is what's the, the where public keys are stored for TLS. I need that parse. It's kind of a notoriously hard format to parse. It's had a lot of bugs. You can then call that in the library and you copy in the certificate and it can give you the, you copy the answers back out but it can't reach anything else or do anything besides uh, that very, very narrow interface. And so that's the kind of things we need to do uh, to get to a point where we can stop trusting the supply chain. Why should I have to trust my third-party libraries to do anything but exactly what I ask them to do? Right now, you're, you know, and, and we see attacks on that, right? We see a lot of attacks on the public supply chain in the JavaScript world and the Python world where an adversary will put a package with a very similar name, like a single uh, like typo, or even there's been good examples of they create package names for dependencies that have a one bit difference in the name. And just some of these packages are so popular and used at such scale that you're going to have um, random bit flips in, in the computers requesting them such that you'll end up, they'll end up requesting the wrong package name. So there's that, and then there's another case where like one of these, there's a lot of examples of these very broad dependencies like log4j, which aren't really well supported. Or maybe it's like 
some dependency that, that the person made and they shared as open source, but they really even haven't really maintained. And so you come along and you say like, oh, hey, I found a bug, here's a patch. And you work with the, the developer and they're like, hey, you know what? Do you want me to just take over maintenance of this? I'll just do that for you. You don't, you're, you're clearly done with it, and, but I'm actually an adversary. So I gain that user's <laughs> trust. I take over ownership of that library. And as soon as I get it, then I insert my back door. And this has been used a lot to see it. This has been a lot to use to compromise developer machines. It's been used to uh, compromise dependencies to steal Bitcoin wallets. So there's a lot of cases of this used uh, all over the place. Um, so it's, 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 it would be really great if we could stop trusting the libraries um, beyond what we needed them to do. And a lot of times that's like nothing. There's no, they shouldn't be able to do anything but take a value and return a value. Well, I, all right. So uh, these all sound like very good ideas. So not trusting libraries, sandboxing, segment permissions. Is there growing recognition of the importance of this? I mean, if I'm going to learn to code maybe through a, a combination of classes and self-teaching or at the other end of the spectrum, get a master's degree in computer science from MIT. Uh, is there a recognition that this is sort of necessary if we're going to have a future that's that, that's not the Wild West uh, or is it still early I mean, days? I think the sad truth is no. I mean, these concepts are not new. I mean, these concepts go back to, they go back to information security before computers. You know, this is, this is not not these are not new concepts, but it's 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 always hard to sell security if it's effort. And we built a whole architecture which made some wrong assumptions and was applied for a different environment. I mean, remember, we built almost all of the code we use today, or at least the architectures we use today, if not the lines today, before we decided to connect all the computers together and the world together into one network. And a lot of these you know, vulnerabilities and bugs were just not really important when it was a standalone computer on a desktop or on a small closed network because you, know, the, you, didn't, you only had to worry about the adversaries who were already in the building. And you know, you can, there's a lot of way, there, there's a lot of, if you're in the building, there's a lot of vectors to attack and these are probably not the most fruitful ones. And you could deal with that you know, in a lot of different ways. But now that all computers are connected to all other computers all the time, it's a lot harder. I mean, and I think it also comes down to, you know, a, a belief that we could make write correct programs. We really thought we could write correct programs. Humans could write correct, correct programs for a long time and that we could manage the complexity we create. I mean, the, like again, the complexity of these programs is huge. I mean, we're very good at managing that complexity so that we can work on them but it doesn't make all the complexity go away. And somewhere we're gonna make a mistake. And in fact, we know, we know what the defect rate is. So it's, so it's pretty well studied what the defect rate is in, in software. And so, you know, you can look at your, your average commercial software is probably 30 to 50 defects per thousand lines of code. You know, very good commercial software, the best commercial commodity software, like out of Microsoft or Google or whatever, you're probably talking about, one defect for every 10,000 lines of code. But we're talking about code bases that number in the millions. So even if you're very good, you still have thousands of, of defects at any given time in your, your piece of software. And some percentage of those defects are going to be security vulnerabilities. And it's just, we're not going to make them go, we're not going to make those defects go away. So we need to change the way we build things to make those defects 
not the security vulnerability. We need to make sure that we build things in a way that just because I can get arbitrary code execution in this library, that doesn't mean I can do anything but what the library was. And so if it's like a JPEG parser, I should be able to return a different JPEG. So I could have a, a malicious JPEG, which gets code execution and returns the wrong JPEG. But that's not actually interesting because I could have just given a different JPEG, you know, a different input, right? Because the JPEG decoder takes a compressed images and returns a bitmap, which is an uncompressed image. So I could get an exploit, which let me return any, you know, a different, a different uncompressed image than you would have expected based on the input. But I could have just given different input as well. So it's sort of no advantage via code execution. And that's the world we'd like to be in, where we say, hey, you're allowed to do this one thing. And if there's a bug in it, it it doesn't, you know, it it's it's the exercising that bug doesn't give you any power that you couldn't have gotten just by giving different input in the first place. And that's not totally clear, I think, but but you get the idea that you really want to limit these things to the least privilege you can give every line of code, really, when it comes down to it. But that's probably too far. You probably want to do it at the like module boundary, the library. When you call into a library, you should give it permissions to do the minimum possible to get its job done. And it should do the same thing with libraries it depends on. All right, well, important and fundamental change. That's all the time we have for this episode of Cyber Context. That's Jonathan Moore, Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. If you like what you hear, please follow us on your uh, podcast catalog. If you're listening on Apple, go over, leave us a comment, give us a rating, tell us how we're doing, what you like and don't like. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.